Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. Isaiah 57 verse 14, the prophet Isaiah is speaking and he says this, And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I want to speak to you today on the subject of preparing for revival. Preparing for revival. I really do believe that um, it's God's intention and purpose that renewal and revival doesn't just happen in one church, one location, but that the entire body of Christ comes into the fullness of the full measure and stature of Jesus Christ. According to Paul in Ephesians 4, that's the goal, that we would grow up, not be infants in our faith, in our spirits, but that we would be spiritually mature and that we would grow into the full measure and stature of Jesus. And uh, it's also one of the reasons why God has given the fivefold ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And I really felt that the Lord wanted me at the end and and we'll, we'll open up the altars at the end, but to pray over the leadership team of this house because I believe that the Lord wants to usher the leadership team of this house into a really dynamic, exciting new season. And um, I believe that, I just sense that like there's a transition of new leadership in the church. And I believe for a new generation, God wants to do a new thing amongst particularly the next generation. Is that relevant at all? Very relevant? Okay, good. Um, it's good when you get one right. Um, but on August um, 28th of this year, 12 weeks ago, um, it'll forever be known in our church as uh, Super Bowl Sunday um, at Numa Church and because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And uh, for several years leading up to that day, um, my prayer in my heart has been from Psalm 85, 6, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Now, when we talk about revival, we're talking about a collision between uh, God's sovereignty and our prayerful preparation. Moves of God aren't just us sitting back waiting for God to turn up and do something. Moves of God is a partnership. We are co-laborers with Christ. And so there are things that God asks of us to do. But at the end of the day, you and I don't initiate it or determine it. We simply partner and co-labor with the work of the Spirit. And if there is anything that the church needs at this, in this hour is revival. Uh, revival is divine intervention in the normal course of, of natural or spiritual things. And, and so um, God, we're in the, uh, in the, on the precipice um, globally right now of a whole new move of the Spirit. I believe that we're in the middle of a five-year transition in the body of Christ where all the chess pieces are being moved around on the chessboard. Churches that once had a voice of influence, it's all changing. The body of Christ is being turned upside down, right side up. And you would see in the media and the news all sorts of things about different churches going through all sorts of travails and tribulations. And it's reflective of what is going on in the world right now. You don't have to be a prophet to work out. There's a lot of turbulence and tribulation that's going on in the world. But we are to still take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. 
Jesus prophesied this would be. And so the church is often trying to get out of the trouble. God's trying to get in to the trouble and to transform it and to reform it. How many of us know Jesus didn't say, your kingdom go and you will be done in heaven as it is in heaven. He said, your kingdom come and you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so for years, my prayer has been, God, will you not revive us again? There comes a point where you've got to stop reading the history lessons and the storybooks of what God once did. And you've got to actually start to contend and believe that God is going to do it through you, in you, and in our generation. And so at midday during our second service on August 28, I went out to uh, the restroom and as I was walking down the side tunnel um, side of stage coming back onto the stage because our guest ministry had opened up the altars and led the the church into an altar call I prayed a simple prayer Lord will you father me I wasn't praying God will you give us revival today God will you fill me with your Holy Spirit God will you break out in signs and wonders I simply said Lord will you father me at a deeper level. Now, I understand the Father heart of God. I've got a revelation of it. I preach it. We talk about sonship and and how um, by the Spirit of God, we are adopted into the family of God. And many of the issues of brokenness in people's lives stems from the fact, yes, they've come from broken homes, but more so that many people, many believers are living with an orphan spirit because they don't have a revelation or encounter with the Father heart of God in their life. And, And so my prayer was, Lord, will you father me at a deeper level? I walked 10 meters and the Holy Spirit stopped me and said, are you serious about that? Yeah, I am. I am. I want you to father me at a deeper level. Five minutes later, I walked in to the auditorium and the altars were full. The auditorium was full and I began to partner with our prayer team and minister to people. When All I can tell you is that I I came into the single greatest God encounter of my life where the only way I can describe it is like being blasted with a Holy Ghost cannon. And I'm someone who, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry for the Spirit. I'm open to the things of the Spirit. But my personality, like to be in control, like to be modest. But on that day, it was like... Um, uh, the, the, every faculty in my body was overtaken by the fullness of God. Where from extreme hyperventilation uh, to extreme inebriation and drunkenness in the Holy Spirit, as we read about on the day of Pentecost, consumed me and overtook me to the point that it's, I'm no longer in control. And in fact, after being out for several minutes and I came to and the Lord said, I want you to um, call the church back on Tuesday night for, for another meeting. And we've had 12 weeks of revival services. Um, uh, when three people were holding me up to speak, the first words out of my mouth were, um, I've got a confession to make. My wife immediately thought, oh no, he's going to repent of some scandalous sin. <laughs> In his life, true story. She hits the deck like, oh, no, Lord, not today. And then out of my mouth is I said, I repent of man-made control. And it wasn't, people came to me afterwards and said, you're not a controlling leader. What was that about? I said, it's control of this, of me. And I, I said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then for the next 12 hours, pandemonium breaks out in the church. We did not finish till 9 p.m. that night. And the greatest outpouring of deliverance, Holy Spirit baptism, healings and prophecies that I've ever seen in my life took place the next 12 hours. It was sovereign, 
but it was also in response to our hunger. And since then, we have seen a wave of now nearly over 350 recorded miracles. We've seen eight cancer patients totally healed, confirmed with scans, and not all of them have had even had treatment. We've seen three uh, cancerous lesions and tumours in one of our team completely disappear without any treatment after um, um, prayer and anointing with oil. We've seen one blind eye open, someone who had no optic nerve for 12 years in their left eye deterioration and even had surgery where their eye was taken out and they had to have reinforced flesh to keep their eyeball in, got prayed for. Two days later was walking down downtown uh, Chinatown in Bangkok and uh, their left eye opened and a creative miracle took place and they started screaming at the top of their voice uh, and stumbling all over the place. I'm like, why are you stumbling? You can see. Um, but you'd stumble too and you'd shout too. And then we've had two deaf ears open, uh, receiving prayer, hearing impairment for 35 years, totally resolved in one moment. We've seen people with uh, fractured knee uh, patellas on crutches leave running out of the building. We've seen walking canes thrown to the side. We've seen these things because of an outpouring of the Spirit of God. Every revival service, we average about 20 to 30 different pastors from the body of Christ uh, that are flying every single week. Even there's six that have just flown in from New Zealand for tonight's service. Uh, there's, there's every week people are coming. We've seen um, Catholic priests get baptized in the Holy Spirit. They came in stealth and then this is a problem with the Holy Spirit. You get words of knowledge and then God tells you stuff about people. And um, and we had a word of knowledge about a Catholic priest and, and for about three minutes, no one put their hand up and then finally this little guy at the back puts his hand up, comes, gets totally baptised in the Holy Spirit. Anglican vicars, people from conservative church backgrounds encountering the presence of God. It can only be a move of God. And, and, and then since then, wherever I've gone and ministered since this outpouring, there has been this further outpouring in the lives of people and churches that can only be described as God's up to something. And so there are things that we're discovering and learning both in the lead up to what's happening in our lives and ministries and church right now, as well as what I'm learning to steward. Because uh, to be honest with you, we really don't know fully what we're doing. Um, we're completely humbly dependent upon the Lord. And anyone who says they know how to uh, manage and steward revival is lying. Come out, you lying spirit. You've got no idea. It's like hanging onto the back of a Ferrari and just saying, God, go. And so so every week, every day, our team, we've got a staff of about 80 odd and we've been praying up to seven hours a day on team. And part of the reason why we've been devoting ourselves to so much prayer is because, Lord, we need to know what the next thing to do is. We're not here plotting it all out going, that looks good. That's very strategic. I read that in a book somewhere. You can't read about revival in a book and determine how it works. You have to follow the Holy Spirit. And let's know Jesus said, come follow me. And I'll make you something. We're so enamored with the art of leadership. We've lost the, the commitment to, of followership to simply obey what God asks us to do. It's not about you leading something. It's about you following the leader. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He knows what to do. 
You've got to follow Him. And so as we follow Him, the leader is leading His church somewhere and we're following where He's going. And so uh, through the prophet Isaiah and through my experience, there's things that we can learn and discover about how to prepare for revival because I believe that God wants to break out here in a similar fashion. But there are going to be some things you've got to understand about what that looks like. The first thing is honour is foundational to revival. The Bible says in verse 14, remove every obstruction from my people's way. One of the greatest obstacles to revival is our lack of honour for God moving on His terms. We want God to move on our terms. We want a move of God that we can control. We want a move of God that is uh, palatable, that suits our appetite, that suits our idea and theology of God. And church must look like this and it's got to fit the box. You need to know God des- de- delights in smashing our boxes. He has a way of offending the mind to reveal what's in the heart. And you can't ask for a move of God and that be dictated to on your terms. Too many leaders I've observed are content to build great churches, but are not contending for a great move of God. A lot of believers just want a comfortable, good church that they can be a part of, raise their families in. I want to tell you, I'm not interested. I'm pretty sure Jesus isn't in just building a church that is commensurate to your palate, your desire, your tastes. He actually wants us to be a part of His church. He wants His church back. And so I'm not content to lead a great church or just build a great church. I want to be a part of a move of God. I was invited to speak at a conference a few years ago where the host of the conference said to me, "Um, hey, uh, we we don't want you preaching on revival because I don't believe that revival is a biblical idea. I'm like, are we reading the same book? Um, And uh, I don't want you to uh, prophesy over the first three rows where all the pastors are because it'll make all the people up the back feel insecure. And I don't want you to share stories and testimonies about what's happening in your life and church because those where it's not happening is sort of going to get all insecure and, and weird. And I'm just like, right about there, I'm out. I'm like, you know, what I'm not your man find somebody else I don't need this gig Um, and he's like oh no we want you but but it's often that mentality is we want a move of God but we want it on our terms it has to fit our theological framework or our lack of experience of God never use and never allow your lack of experience of God to become the measuring stick for somebody else's experience of God. Just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean God can't do it. Just because you've never seen someone healed doesn't mean God can't heal you. And what we often do is when there is the absence of something, we become professional explainers of why God doesn't heal today and why the gifts of the Spirit aren't relevant today. And we come up with weird doctrines like cessationism that says miracles and fivefold ministry gifts died out in the first century. And the reason we do that is because we haven't never experienced it in our own lives. Rather, Jesus didn't ask you to become a professional explainer of why nothing's happening. He asked you to believe. He said, be it unto you according to your faith. 
And so as we come to Him in childlike faith and we come to Him with a humble heart and we honour how God moves, it's amazing what you'll begin to see. We must contend for the fullness of a supernatural gospel. Jesus said in John 14, 12, even greater works than these will you do. Anybody ever stop and ask, where are the greater works? Just every now and then, where are the greater works? I mean, he said, I'm going the Father. I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, and you're going to do greater works. So if he said that's true and Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and he cannot lie, then you and I are to expect if there is a lack in your life, the lack is never on God's end. It's always on ours. So rather than blaming God and putting the, the responsibility on God's shoulders, God is willing where He sees faith and where He responds to people. And so the posture is, God, I'm going to honour the way that you move. And if we're not willing to embrace the mess of a move of God, we're going to miss the ways in which God wants to move. One of my favourite revival verses, Proverbs 14.4 says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. There's some really deep revelation for you today. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. In other words, you want harvest, you want fruitfulness, there's going to be some mess. If you want everything clean and neat and orderly and it's all got to fit in your paradigm of life and church, you're going to miss what God's got for you. Revival is messy. It introduces to you new ways of being offended. All right, because God just moves in ways that you can't control. And so he says, come to me. Unless you repent and become like a little child, you're not going to access the fullness of my kingdom. That's why Jesus came preaching, Matthew 4, 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance isn't feeling remorseful. It's a change of thinking. It's a change of heart. We, his thoughts aren't our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways. Isaiah 55, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts, so are his ways. So if you want God's ways to become your ways, then his thoughts are going to become your thoughts. We need a renewal of our mind, a renewal of our thinking. And so we see in Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, when Jesus read out his job description in Isaiah 61 in the temple and synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to open prison to those who are bound, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, open eyes that are blind, etc., etc. After the initial amazement of his peers and the people he grew up with, dishonour comes in, unbelief comes in, because they said, hang on a sec, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? I mean, we grew up with him. We went fishing with him. Who does this guy think he is? And because of dishonour, there was a lack of faith in who Jesus was. And the Bible says Jesus could not do many mighty miracles there. And the Bible says that Jesus said that no prophet is without honour in his own hometown. And so unbelief and dishonour go hand in hand when it comes to who God is, what God's doing and who God is using. And the more that we have a bless me if you can attitude and a dishonour for the suddenly surprising ways of God, we're not going to see the fullness of the miraculous break out in our lives. Many people would rather be an expert in the old thing rather than a novice in the new thing. And you just need to know 
that, that God's doing a new thing yeah. in His church and in the, in the earth today. Isaiah 43, 18, 19, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Let us not be like the Pharisees who are on the steps of the temple watching the triumphant entry go in, going, tell your followers to stop shouting Hosanna in the highest. The move of God was going past and they were observing it, but they weren't participating in it. And if we don't, aren't willing to become childlike and novices in the new thing, the move of God is going to b- bypass us. And we're going to be standing there as spectators rather than participators in what it is that God wants to do. But when you give honour to what God's doing, you get into the slipstream of the river of the Spirit and you begin to uh, you know, see God not just work in somebody else's life, but work in your life. You know, people get nervous about revival and the, the Holy Spirit and, and, and sort of, you know, part of the reason is, oh, what if it goes into excess? Well, I've studied every revival there is from Pentecost onwards. Let me tell you, no revival has ever ended because of excess. Every revival's ended because of man-made control. Every single time. John Wesley said, God... Give us revival without its defects. But if we can't have revival without its defects, just give us revival. If you want to control it, you won't experience it. And we've built churches and environments based upon what we can control. And we wonder why we don't see more work of the Spirit of God at work in people's lives. So honour is foundational. You've got to remove the obstructions, one of them being control of how God moves. The second thing is that holiness is essential. The Bible says in verse 15 that God dwells in the high and holy place. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, Be holy as I am holy, being Jesus' words, God's words, Be holy as I am holy. So the nature of God is holiness to be set apart. It's not just moral character. It's not just righteous works. It's who He is. It's His nature. He is set apart. So when God says, be holy as I am holy, He's calling us to be reorientated back to His nature. The Spirit, after all, is still a holy Spirit. Because of a cheap imitation of grace, we seem to think that we can live unholy, lifestyles of sin and God be okay with it because after all, there's grace. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is an empowerment to live a holy life. And whilst there's always fullness and abundance, divine unmerited favour, there's always a second chance and God is a God of new beginnings. The reality is He calls us to be holy because He is holy, not to earn more power, not to somehow earn His favour. If I perform for you, you will do this for me. Many Christians live with a performance works mentality. If I do this, you'll do this because they don't have a revelation of God as Father. They have only a revelation of God as judge. I know about you. I don't want to spend time with the judge. I don't want to be intimate, pour out my heart to a judge. I feel like I've got a yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, perform, do what you ask me to do because it's all based on the rules. If 
you're approaching God based upon the rules, you see holiness as a duty to perform. Not a joy and a delight because it's who He is. The Bible says in Psalm 45 that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness. So many believers approach holiness like they've been sucking lemons. You know, like this constipated sort of look. And it's like, hey, Jesus was a glad, happy, joyful person. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is our strength. And we wonder why we feel so fatigued or weak at times. It's because we're looking to the happiness of our circumstances rather than to the person of joy. Joy is a person before it's a circumstance. Joy is relational, not circumstantial. And so holiness is something that is to be delighted in. And and when God gets close, when the holiness of God gets close to you, it exposes what is not holy. And what a lot of us do, if we're like still with this mindset of Adam and Eve being shame and, and being a judge, we run away from the very person we should run to. And we feel remorseful or we feel shame for our sin. And so we try and hide it rather than bringing it out into the light and allowing the Spirit of God to deal with it. Now, back in 2002, when I was a youth pastor, I was praying for revival to break out in our youth ministry. I was believing. I had six weeks of travel and speaking. I'm like, God, I want to see miracles, signs and wonders. And as I'm praying, the Lord said, take back the weights. And I'm like, this, that's weird. Um, I know there's a verse of Scripture in Hebrews 12, lay aside the weights and the sin which clings so closely. Yep, Lord, I'm laying aside the weights. I don't know about take back the weights. And as I'm praying and justifying myself, the Lord says, take back the weights. And all of a sudden there was this light bulb picture that appeared above my head where I saw myself dragging weights from my high school gym that I'd stolen 10 years before across the back oval to my garage at home. Some of you covet Ferraris and other people. I coveted weights. And so I took these weights and I intended at the end of the term to bring them back. And so, you know, uh, here I am 10 years later and I'd forgotten those weights are still in the garage gathering dust. And the Lord says, you want me to bless your ministry. Now you're a man of God. You're married and you're believing for miracles. I want you to honour me and take back the weights. I can't do that, God. It's so embarrassing. What are they going to say? I'm a man of God. I can't do that. Yes, you can. So I filled that car up with the weights. And I was like deja vu walking back across the car park as I went to the reception. And I explained myself to the receptionist. She had a bit of a giggle and showed great grace. (laughs) Handed them back. I felt a lot lighter when I walked out. No pun intended. And the next six weeks, I saw the greatest move of God up to that date in my life and ministry. Because He's still a holy God. And he's, He's still calling us to a standard of righteousness. Not as a performance, but as a reflection of His character. So if honour for His presence and how He moves is foundational, holiness according to His nature is essential. Not only that, but humility is required. Humility is required. What does the Bible say? God says, I dwell with him or her who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. In other words, God does not dwell with the prideful. He loves everyone, but His presence does not align with or favour pride. 
His presence manifests with those who are broken and contrite in their spirit. David said in Psalm 51, after he committed adultery and murdered Uriah. It's a bad day when those two things happen, okay? And the Lord still said, you're a man after my own heart. Why? Because of his broken and contrite heart before God. Saul probably arguably did less scandalous sins and yet was rejected by God simply because Saul refused to be honest and be broken and contrite in heart about his own issues and and sinfulness in his life. God affords much grace to people who are willing to fess up. What does the Bible say? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Healing comes through transparency of confession. It may be difficult. It may be challenging. But healing and restoration can only come as we allow God to break our hearts for the things that break His heart. And we come into alignment with His heart and nature. The Bible says in James 4, 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'm very simple. I just do the math. If there is already enough resistance in life, why would you want the creator of heavens and earth resisting you? And then people say, oh God, will you humble me? I'm like, I'm, I'm getting away from that person right now. Because it'll be last night, like the 10 plagues of thunder and lightning in the middle of the night. Anyone else have that last night? And it's like, Jesus is coming back tonight, right? I'm getting away. I remember running through a park once and a bolt of lightning uh, came within 10 metres and hit a tree and split it in half. That's enough for me. I was on my face. I, I, I humble myself. That's too close to home for me. I humble myself. Why would you persist in being stubborn and prideful? And, and, and incurring the resistance of heaven against you when there's already enough resistance in life. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to allow you, God, to work whatever it is that you want to do in me. And often there is a delay in fruitfulness or in what God wants to do because God is allowing us to get to the end of ourselves until we release control of the keys of the car and the steering wheel and say, God, you're driving the car. What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Cory Ten Boom, who was a great um, sort of a raider and speaker and evangelist of the 20th century, survived the Second World War and sharing her story. She was asked, um, What keeps you humble? And she replied so well. She said, when Jesus was riding in on the donkey into Jerusalem, do you think it entered into the mind of that donkey for one moment that all of that praise and honor, Hosanna in the highest, was for the donkey? (laughs) She said, of course not. She said, all I am is a donkey that Jesus Christ can ride in his glory upon. When you make it about you rather than about him, everything stops. Momentum, it all stops. And we all go through wilderness seasons. I'm not talking about Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So sometimes we go through wilderness seasons. But I'm talking about when you and I make it about him than us, it's amazing what move of God will take place in our lives. So honour is foundational. Holiness is essential. Humility is required, but hunger is necessary. And in Proverbs 27, 7, the Bible says, One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Who's ever been so hungry, didn't matter what they put in front of you, you're going to eat it. I've been on some mission trips that I ate some rather questionable things that I did because I was just flat out hungry. 
I remember as a kid, I'd go in at my grandparents' house when they were alive and be like, you know, Pop, I'm hungry. Have you got any lollies or something like that? And he'd be like, if you're hungry, you'll eat anything. And then he proceeded to tell me a story of World War II. And he, you know, marched through, you know, uh, enemy infested territory in Papua New Guinea jungles for 72 hours. And when they put spam in front of him, he'd eat anything. And so I'd feel all guilty and remorseful, just give me spam or bread or, you know. And and, when, when you're hungry, even everything bitter is sweet. And so many people in our world are so hungry for the genuine and the real. They're so thirsty for for rivers of living water. They'll even drink dirty toilet water. They'll eat whatever junk comes their way in the spirit realm, in relation, because they're so hungry for this emptiness inside of them to be filled. When it comes to the things of God, hunger is absolutely necessary. The first sign of the morbidly sick Anyone who's ever been around a near dead person would know this. First sign of the morbidly sick, they lose their hunger. First sign of an unhealthy Christian is they lose their hunger for God. That's why never allow a complacent believer to tell you what God is or isn't doing in the earth right now. I never trust what a dis, you know, a content, satisfied, complacent believer thinks about what God's doing and what He isn't doing. Dictate to me what He is and isn't doing. I'm looking for that person who's hungry. He's got such a desire and appetite and a thirst that they'll even look in bad situations and extract the good. You know, when the Syrophoenician woman asked Jesus to heal her daughter, Jesus responded rather politically incorrect and said, you know, even... Um, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Your little baby Jesus, meek and mild in a manger, grew up and said something very unwoke and politically incorrect to a non-Jewish woman. That's Jesus. And rather than being offended, she maintained her posture of hunger and faith. She said, yes, Jesus, but even... The dogs eat the breadcrumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus is like, I like you. You see, faith, the posture of faith is the posture of hunger. Refuses to get offended by delay and by disappointment and by it didn't work out the way I thought. But hunger looks past the offence and says, God, I want what you have for me because whatever you want from God is on the other side of your offence. And what God will often do is He'll move in ways that offend our minds to reveal what we can't see in our hearts. You know, I've seen more bizarre things the last 12 weeks than in 44 years of my life where it's like, God, I... I don't know if that's you or them, but I just want you. <laughs> I've seen the weird, the wacky and the wonderful, but I've crossed the line. I've joined them because I'm like, I know what happened to me. I've tasted of that and I've tasted of that and I want that. Because if God has to fit in my box, I'm probably not going to be a candidate for revival. 
But when I said it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not about what I think or even want. There are moments where I'm so uncomfortable in my flesh and yet I know it's God. I know it's God. Like God, just come. Upset every religious spirit in this room. Come and do whatever it is that you've got to do. You know the great thing about hunger, it doesn't require giftedness. You don't have to be talented. It just requires desire. Catherine Coleman, the great healing evangelist of the 20th century, she, she said this, I was born without talent. One day I said, wonderful Jesus, I don't have a thing. But if you can take nothing and use it, he is nothing. All I can give you is my love. And the rest is history. Some of us look at people on the platform and people doing great things in marketplace. And you say, if I was like that, God would be able to use me. No, or you don't need to be talented or gifted. You just need hunger. Just need desire. Very, I did this thousand page profile survey thing years ago when they told me at the end of it with a consultant, paid a thousand dollars for it. And they told me, you know, it's clear from the data of this profile, you've got no technical skills whatsoever. <laughs> I said, you mean to tell me I paid you a thousand bucks for you to tell me what my wife tells me every single day? That's not, that's not a revelation to me. I already know that. But I tell you, something I do have is hunger. A heart full of Jesus. A total and utter surrender. I think it was D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see, apart from Jesus, what God will do with someone who is totally surrendered and doesn't care who gets the credit. That's how I want to live. And it comes back to your hunger. God only promises to pour water on the thirsty land and the streams on the dry ground. I asked God once, God, how long should I pray? I want to know the formula. Ever, you know, prayed a prayer like that? What should it look like? God's like, wrong question. The question is, how hungry are you? Because when you want something bad enough, it doesn't matter how many hours. It doesn't matter how long. And if you're following Jesus and satisfied with 10 minutes of devotions every day, I'm not sure you're going to survive the darkness that's coming into the world. And I fear for the church and the believer that thinks near enough's good enough. I fear for the church or the believer that thinks 90 minutes on a Sunday I've done my duty. We're coming into a day. We're coming into an hour. We're coming into darkness. But the only way that the church is going to shine brighter is if we look and become more and more like Him. And all I know is in the natural, the more time I spend with my wife, the more I fall in love with her, the more I get to know her. Why do we think it's any different with the way, the truth and the life? If you want to know what the way is in the midst of all sorts of myriad of confusing ways, what the truth is with all sorts of heretical doctrines and what true life is all about, you got to spend more time with the way, the truth and the life. That comes back to your hunger. The Lord said to me before this outpouring, much of what my church is doing, I'm not even in. A.W. Tozer said, the Holy Spirit was taken from the modern church. 95% of it would continue. 
the Holy Spirit was taken from the first century church, 95% of it would stop. Much of what we do, we can do. God doesn't need to do it. But the Lord said to me, I will only go where I'm hungered for, where I'm sought after and where I'm sacrificed for. He loves everyone. Everything you need from God, He'll give to you. But everything you want, you have to go and seek yourself in Him. And there is a price to pay. Honour is foundational. Holiness is essential. Humility is required and hunger is necessary. Just recently, I, uh, along with the team, we're in visiting our new church plan in San Francisco. And on the way home after the trip, we went to Azusa Street. Azusa Street is the birthplace of Pentecostalism. So this great move of God that has happened for over 100 years, birthed in 1906, took place in terms of a church expression in Azusa Street. And so we went down to Azusa Street. We're praying there. Azusa Street today is a very small street. It's broken. There's human excrement everywhere. It's dirty. Spiritually, it's dark. And we ministered to a cleaner there who told us, people come here all the time and pray. And he said, you actually need to go to Bonnie Bray House. And I know the story in the history of Bonnie Bray House is actually where um, William Seymour, an African-American man, uh, who is the grandfather, the godfather of Azusa Street. It's where he got baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And... I didn't know that you could still go to Bonnie Bray House today. It's an original condition and walk through and have a tour of it. So he says, you need to go to Bonnie Bray House. So we drive over 15 minutes, get to Bonnie Bray House. It's all locked up. And a sign says for reservations and bookings, call. And we didn't have a booking reservation. So it's all locked up. No one's there. So we said, oh, we're just going to pray out the front. When after about 30 seconds, the front door opens. An Hispanic lady walks out, you know, late 70s, early 80s, and she walks out and she looks at us and she says, do you want to come in? We're like, yes, we do. She said, I'm the custodian, the caretaker of this property. And uh, I was praying here this morning. I come here every day to pray. And, um, and she said, there were no bookings until another hour. I wasn't going to open the house up to you. But the Holy Spirit said, open up the house to these people because my favor is on them and I want to bless them. So she opens up the door, we go in. Within five minutes, we're on our faces. Such was the manifest presence of God. And you can feel the presence of God in this room right now. We're on our faces and we're only supposed to be there 10, 20 minutes. 45 minutes later, we're still travailing, weeping, interceding, sobbing in the presence of God. She begins to tell us about the history, the untold history of the house. She lived in the house for 20 years, immersed in the anointing in that house. And she said, where you are standing right now, pointing to me, she said, this is where William Seymour, back in 1906, got baptised in the Holy Spirit and went and started preaching at Azusa Street and the rest is history. And as she's saying it, I'm saying, God, would you get her to lay hands upon me? Because the Bible talks about impartation through the laying on of hands, where you literally receive grace and anointing from this grace and spirit in someone else's life into your life. I said, Lord, would you... Get her to lay hands on me and impart. She's lived in this house for years. I didn't ask her, but as we stood up to go and check out Catherine Coleman's pulpit, which was in the other living room, talking about diet and go to heaven from a revival perspective. The Lord says, give her the cash that's in your pocket. So I pulled out 
the dollars, gave her and said, I want to sow this into your life and ministry. She grabbed my hand. As soon as she grabbed my hand, I hit the deck. She lays hands upon my head. I go out again. She starts to prophesy over our church, not knowing anything about our church. Accuracy of what God's doing, what what is happening. I was so overcome. I shook for an hour under the presence of God. It's not my personality. It's not who I am. Weeping and sobbing and and sort of crawling from one room to the next as trying to see what was going on in this house. And there was this man from India who flew in that day, came from LAX, went straight to Bonnie Bray House to ask God for something. And because he had, she, he had a reservation, she opened up the door to him and he came in. And as he's there praying in the living room with Catherine Coleman's pulpit is, the Lord says, lay hands on him and prophesy, I'm going to give him 10,000 souls. So laid hands upon him, prophesied. He starts to sob uncontrollably in this room. And as we get through the rest of the house and we're leaving after an hour and a half, he runs out to me and he grabs me and he says, I flew all the way from India. I landed this morning. I came straight here to come and ask God to give me 10,000 souls in my ministry in India. And he said, today God has answered my prayers. And I want to tell you today, When you posture yourself in a place of hunger and when you honour God for who He is, not on your terms, but on His terms, and you come into a place of humbling yourself and saying, God, I want your nature to become my nature. And all of this often happens all at once. You actually posture yourself and position yourself to have an encounter with God you've never had before. And I believe the Spirit of God is here today for you to encounter Him in a way you've never encountered before. I want to invite you to stand to your feet with me today. And right now in this moment, you say, God, I'm I'm so hungry for you. I want to invite you to get out from where you are. Come and stand right at the front. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.